Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. I want to spend a few minutes here at the beginning of our, our message time uh, coming back to some thoughts from last week, last week's topic. These are a couple of lingering additional thoughts uh, to add to what we talked about last week when we dove into the idea that you and I as human beings deeply crave one thing more than anything else. And you may want to fight me on that this morning. You may want to push back and say, well, Brad, I'm an introvert. Or, Brad, I prefer to live life more privately. And I respect that. And we all have different personalities. Amy's an introvert, believe it or not. She actually is. She does what she does here in leading worship on Sundays and is sweet to all of you. And she goes home and tells me, now shut up and give me three hours to recharge. I don't think she says shut up. Um, Maybe I just take it that way. I could talk with people seven days a week, all day long. We, 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 we're wired differently. And yet, regardless of your personality, you, as a human being, deeply desire more than anything else, more than a great retirement plan, or how, how your uh, career trajectory is mapping out, your hobbies, which you enjoy to do for fun, more than anything, you deeply desire Living and thriving in community. And God tells us in his story, even in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, we looked at this last week, that we were designed by a God who Father, Son, Spirit together, create it together, collaborate it together in community. And now you and I are made in his image. And there is a deep, deep in our emotional DNA desire to be accepted. And to have a kind of laughter in our lives that comes from deep friendship. And that we can express love that is encouraging and even life-changing. So why are we so often the opposite of this? Why is it that if we're honest, and we're, we're honest here in our gathering together and in this community, why is it that we often do the opposite? We behave in the opposite way. We actually keep a distance with people. We actually portray an image of ourselves that isn't authentic or maybe is the better version of ourselves that we wish we were and that we want people to believe. Why do we hide behind digital screens and tell ourselves, well, I'm very connected in community. All I do is talk hundreds of people I talk to all day long. I text and communicate constantly with human beings. And yet there's a certain raw authenticity that we will not disclose to people. Why are we so cautious with people? If we were designed... By God, to be well-connected with people, why are we so cautious with people? And so today, I'm I'm really doing, I think, two messages this morning. Uh, This first message is a revisiting of our topic last week. I've got just a few additional thoughts about community and what it is to be in healthy relationships. 
A friend of mine just, just a few weeks ago, doesn't live in this area, we were talking about just this topic of close community. And he and I have become very close. And he admitted something to me. He said, I believe, I know God is showing me. He's been exposing in me. And it's embarrassing to say this, but there is a tendency in me that I actually have practiced and gotten pretty good at where I know how to fake it. I know how to fake interest in people and in conversations. And he said, God is trying to root this out of me. He's trying to get it out of me so that I'm more authentic. And I walked away impressed with my friend to, 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 to be self-aware, to be hearing God's spirit, and to, and to voice it. And instead of thinking critically of him, like, wow, he's faking it. I walked away with this, and it's very counterintuitive. I walked away proud of him and feeling closer to him for disclosing something so vulnerable. And doesn't it have that same effect on you, the story I just told you? Are you thinking, what a jerk? Or are you thinking, wow, that guy just said something that I'm not sure I have the courage to say. Isn't, it, isn't authenticity attractive? Why do we do this? Why knowing that we're wired to be in community and in relationships? Why is it that we, we so often and we even work hard at the opposite? It's because when you and I are designed the way we are for this, designed by a God that lives and breathes in community and Jesus prayed before his crucifixion that we would be one just as he Father, Son, Spirit is one. When we experience the opposite, when you design for close relationship and authentic community, when you actually experience being unaccepted, wounded, left alone, a process begins, a deeply emotional process begins of protecting ourselves. And these just come out of my notes and my journaling. Maybe there's more than three. I have discovered and have written about, and I'm just going to quickly here hit on three ways we protect ourselves. We, we learn to protect ourselves through distance by distancing ourselves. And we make all kinds of excuses of why we're doing the right thing of being removed from people. Vulnerable, open, more honest kinds of conversations and relationships. Another way we protect ourselves is by pretending. Pretending to be somebody that we're not. Maybe we're embarrassed to show who we really are. Or maybe we just want to impress people. Or we just don't want people to see the hurt or who we used to be or maybe still are a little bit. A third way is incredibly toxic. It's hard for us to get our heads around. We, we, we'll all agree here today. Well, that's inhumane and that is retaliation and yet hurt can run so deep in our psyche and in our emotional being there is something in us that as humans and you've probably experienced this the hurt of another person that tells a person that hurting another person is a protective mechanism that is okay Now, I'm going to admit something here, and please don't judge me. You may think of me more mature than this. Twice this summer, not even close together, once in June and once in July, 
I watched the movie Jaws twice. And I know that that movie can be seen as silly and just so unrealistic. It's on my top 15 all-time greatest movies. You know, there's the whole background with Spielberg. He had very little money, what he did. The, the summer blockbuster movie never existed until Jaws. It was the first one. And the, the level of suspense, it is so hard to do that in a movie. It is so hard to make a movie where suspense is created in the audience. And Jaws is one of those early movies that does that. Well, late in the movie, when the three men are finally in the boat, and it's gotten dark, they're out in the ocean, they're looking for Jaws, it's going to be the next day that they, they discover Jaws, and that he's much bigger than they even expected. This is the boat where they realize the next day they wish they were in a bigger boat, that boat. So they're in conversation, and these three guys who've been in competition with each other and telling each other to back off and don't get into my business, you know, that's the, the, the relationship of these three. Some of those guards are being dropped, and now more real conversations happening, and Captain Quint and Matt Hooper, the two obnoxious, more arrogant of the two, start disclosing, um, not just telling shark encounters, but they start pulling up their sleeves and their shirts and their pants legs and showing shark bites. These big scars, ugly scars. And the mature person throughout the story, Chief Brody, is the one who's silent. He doesn't have any scars to show, or at least none that he's comfortable showing. Who knows? And it's interesting that mature, reasonable Chief Brody, who's holding everybody together through the whole movie, suddenly is the silent observer. And it's these two, in competition with each other, who start vulnerably telling and showing the ugly. And with every ugly scar comes a story. And it's, it's interesting, and when you watch movies and you, 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 you dive into this level, yes, it's Jaws, and yes, there's some silly in this, it's a fascinating scene where Chief Brody suddenly is silent. He's not part of the conversation. He doesn't have a story to tell because he's not showing any scars. And relationally healthy people know how to tell about their wounds and aren't afraid for scars to be part of their story. So before the second part of my message today, it's actually related. These two topics are related today. Before we get to the celebration, the practice of baptism, I want to just give you three uh, fairly quick, high-level thoughts, additional thoughts about community, healthy relationships. Here's the first. The core, the center point of good, right, healthy relationships is trust, period. That's it. The core of what we deeply crave in other people is trust. This is the glue. This is the glue that makes us really connected and able to be our true selves. Um, I said this last week. I think it's worth repeating that deepening trust begins when you disclose something intentionally or maybe, maybe someone finds out part of your real story by accident. It doesn't really matter. 
when something of your ugly or something embarrassing or a fear or a mistake or regret is disclosed to a person, they respond loving you and still believing in you. This is the beginning of emotional, emotionally deepening trust. There's surface level trust. When you drive out here today in your car in traffic, you are actually, we're subconscious to this, you're trusting the strangers you're driving past. You're trusting the safety of your family with strangers that are passing within feet of your car. When you walk out in the lobby and say hi to someone new or chat with them, there's a level of trust. It's that entry level that we talked about last week. You're trusting that they're not going to just mock you or, or discredit you for what you're wearing or how you're dressed. They're going to be polite. and that, that is a level of trust. And in our society today, we, we don't get past the entry level very much. We're guarded from the deepening, emotionally connected kind of trust. And that kind of trust emerges when something of your real character, of your real background, of the raw, of regret, is shared with someone. And their response isn't mocking or disowning you, judging you, but their response is still love, or maybe increased love. I pulled this from my journal in 2019. This is counterintuitive. When someone communicates weakness, maybe it's a regret or a mistake, something embarrassing, when they communicate this about themselves, it actually produces trust. With a healthy person, it produces trust. Because everyone in the conversation, when you're being real, knows it's genuine. This is the power of vulnerability. When someone communicates weakness, brokenness, a flaw, a fault about someone else, when a person communicates brokenness or wrong, a mistake in someone else, it always creates distrust. And it's super confusing. Who do you distrust? Do you distrust the person being talked about? This is why gossip is so destructive. Do you distrust the person? Ooh, they really did that? Ooh, that's part of their story? Or do you distrust the storyteller? Like, why are they telling the story about someone else? But the result is the exact opposite when someone sincerely apologizes or is open, honest about a struggle or says, this is an area God wants me to grow in. It always produces trust among healthy people, emotionally healthy people. A little bit more from my journal here. This is the relational benefit of humility. Humility is the language of authenticity. Our common unity here at church, our teams, our friendships here, is our need for Jesus' health. This is what really binds us together. Whatever your political leaning is, whatever your background, however you grew up, whatever your own story, wealthy, not so wealthy, what really ties us together here into community, our common unity, is we all need Jesus to make us more whole. We need his character, his image in us, his wisdom, his vision, his creativity to solve a problem or inspire people towards change. His gospel, gospel meaning his really fantastic news, his power. We need his attributes, all of us, and that's the core of what makes us a community here, makes us a family here at Dulles. And it's our shared expression 
of something's wrong in me, something's incomplete, and I need an outside source to make me more who I was designed to be, to make me more the image of God. Second thought about relationships is um, when you express something, this can also be counterintuitive, and certainly in society, we avoid these statements. Uh, Amy and I, have we've, we've talked on stage before, and we have tried to model this as parents and with each other. When there's an ugly moment, when there's an argument, if our girls have heard an argument or seen us arguing, I'm just using this as an example, we have really tried to practice apologizing well, owning it. Dad was ugly. Mom was being a jerk to dad. <laughs> I love saying that one. Um, my, w girls, we, th there, there's something in me that when I feel stress or jaw, I just, I, I brought it home with me. Or we, and we've talked to you about this before. There's something powerful. It actually doesn't tell your kids, while well, my parents are jerks, apologizing well tells them I can trust my parents because they're being real. And they're actually explaining. They understand intellectually why they were being ugly. They were being selfish. It was just a stressful day and I let it. Okay, so in light of that, I just recently, just, just in the last few months, I heard John Ortberg. John Ortberg's a pastor, church leader on the West Coast. I've followed him for years. He and Rick Blackman, psychologist, were in a conversation on a podcast, John Ortberg's podcast called Become New. And they were talking about the four statements that build character. And they jumped out at me. One of them is the example I just gave about apologizing well. And I'm adding to it, not only do they build character internally, they build trust externally. So here's my second additional thought is that we should practice regularly make, uh, offering these four statements because they build trust with emotionally healthy people. The, the, the first is I was wrong. Get better at saying those words to your spouse, to your kids, to a coworker, to a friend. I was wrong. The second statement is I'm sorry. The third statement is, I don't know. We need to be better at saying, I don't know. And then the fourth statement that not only builds character internally, but builds trust, I would say, absolutely externally, is I need help. Again, it's counterintuitive. We try not to say those things. Certainly as a culture, that shows weakness. That shows that there's something wrong with me. What it actually does is build trust. Because the person, if they're healthy, they know you're being authentic. They know you're saying something they maybe haven't had the courage to say yet. Okay, um, I'm going to move on to my third additional thought, and it's the power of the question. I mentioned this briefly last week. We've got to harness the power of the question in relationship building. We often are passive. We let others start or initiate. We let them go first. I'll just see how the conversation goes. You have so much power in asking a question. You show interest, you show genuine interest. You learn more of a person's story. Jesus was a master at this. We say often here, Jesus was the master teacher in revealing the true nature of God. What God's kingdom is, Jesus would describe God's kingdom, his realm, his power that's coming here to earth, now through the church. We know that Jesus was a master teacher. We don't often think that he was a master 
at harnessing the question, the power of the question. He would ask introductory kinds of questions. He would ask questions that would help him get to know people better. He would ask questions that were more probing, that exposed the deeper intent of someone's heart. John chapter 1, when Andrew and John, who will someday be disciples of Jesus, when they're passing by Jesus, and they're like, oh, there he is. This is, the rat. This is Jesus. Jesus notices his very first interaction with these two future disciples is a question. What are you looking for? That question started so much. If we go to Matthew 16, this is that amazing conversation with the disciples where the first person ever says out loud, you are God. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a wise teacher. You're actually God. You're the Messiah who's come in the flesh. Peter was the first person to, to acknowledge this. Well, in that amazing discourse, Jesus starts it all with a question. And he responds with questions. When they came to uh, the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Who, who are people saying the Son of Man is? Well, some say John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah, reincarnated, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus responds with a question. What about you? Another question. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're him. We know now. You're actually God. John chapter 4. I could, we, we could spend all day. One more example. John chapter 4. I love the story. For years the story has done so much inside of me. Jesus is talking at the well with the woman. The Samaritan woman. And he ends up offering her living water that will make her alive forever. This whole remarkable conversation that involves what real worship is it begins with Jesus asking a question to the woman would you give me a drink it's fascinating Jesus needs something from her first he asks her it's a conversation starter but he was so good at it get this in the four gospels Matthew Mark Luke John Jesus asks over 300 questions and if we're going to practice the character of Jesus if we're going to practice the, the intentional relating to other people, we, are, we must become better and better, not at big, deep, intimidating conversations. That's not where you start. You start with questions. I'm going to give you just a few. These are just, these quickly came to mind. Kind of entry level, let's start there. Where are you from? Or hi, how long have you been at Dulles? That question, before you leave the doors, can start friendships. You want to, Go to another layer in the relationship or the conversation. Would you want to get coffee sometime? Or how did the work project go? How's your mom doing? Or I'm in a fire pit group at church on Monday nights. Would you want to, would you want to go to one with me sometime? Or would you guys want to talk more about your story over dinner one night? That question can lead, not always, there are going to be selfish people or there's going to be just kind of a block or maybe somebody's hesitant or their own hurt. They're just not ready. But it gives you opportunities to connect with someone and it leads to deepening community. Make sense? All right, I'm abruptly ending message number one. That message is over. Make sense about community, relationships. I hope, I hope this is helpful. Uh, I didn't have time last week to get into those points and I, I, I wanted to 
still offer them. Okay, this is actually not a completely separate message. This is related. Jesus devised a way to welcome people into his community, the community of his church. And there's so many layers to baptism. It is a going public statement, which is important in the life of someone who's actually going to follow and practice the way of Jesus. At some point, you just can't keep it private between you and him. You will grow stale and dormant spiritually. You were not designed to just watch church online or just read your Bible to yourself. You'll actually get very confused and discouraged if all you do is read scripture by yourself. You were made to consume scripture in community. I hear it constantly today as a mantra. Oh, I'm spiritual, but I, I, it's, it's, my relationship with God is private. I respect that idea. It's just not the story of Jesus and what he calls us into. And so baptism is a practice that the early church practiced regularly. And we have one coming up here in a couple of weeks. And I want to put it in context today and why we as a church practice it and why it should be deeply valuable to you as a part of our church and as a follower of Jesus. Okay, so oddly, maybe this seems odd, I'm going to go back into the Old Testament and I'm just... I'm going to hit, we won't even put this on the screen, really, the, the larger context of this. There is the remarkable, you know, baptism is part of the practice of celebration. And I think churches have become pretty bad at celebrating. Throughout church history, you see churches become strict. Like, oh, you're breaking this rule. Or, oh, you did this behavior. And judging outsiders, it's like we become this, I'm, I'm saying we generally, you know, throughout history. The church has become known for what it's against, and, and what it protests, when actually so much of the New Testament context of the church is a group of people who have become incredibly good at celebrating. Celebrating people and life and wins and what God's power can do. It begins in the Old Testament. With the Israelites, this practice of celebrating, it's deeply important to God. There are many, many festivals and long-standing feasts that run for weeks. Maybe none more important than Passover. And Passover became the celebration rooted in the, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt and being freed. And they see God do the remarkable. Stay with me. This is, this is very relevant to baptism. They see God do the remarkable... And they are freed, every single human being. We think there was between two to three million that are freed from slavery by God's power. They go through the desert and run, in to, run up to the edge of the Red Sea. And the people are so confused. They turn against Moses. What, what is God doing? What have you done? You did all the remarkable, God, to free us only to bring us to this desert to die because... We're up against this raging, dangerous sea, which if we stood on the shore today, it would look like an ocean. Wouldn't it have been better, the people said, if we had just died and were buried in Egypt? And God says, Moses, you and I together are going to teach the people how I'm at work always and to never, never waver in their trust in me and what I'm doing. And of course, it leads to God 
splitting that sea and the people cross on dry ground and then their threat is crushed. Pharaoh's army is crushed in the sea. Okay, stay with me. The younger generation, that next generation, comes to the banks of the Jordan River. Not only is God freeing them from the, the, the travesty of slavery, he's actually leading them to this full life promised land kind of life. And they are on the bank of the Jordan looking into the promised land. And for some odd, strange perplexing reason God has led them to the banks of the Jordan River the one time of year during the rainy season when the banks are flooding and the kids can't get across the river why in the world God if you're good why would you bring us to the the brink of the promised land the opposite of slavery during the harvest season the one time of year where we can't cross and God says, Joshua, tell the people that when they place their feet in the river, I actually want them to step. I want them to move as if they're going all in. Then you'll see me do the remarkable. And that generation fully trusts. And they just step into the raging Jordan River. And God, he stops the river from flowing upstream and they cross into the promised land. Uh, one of my very favorite stories in the Old Testament. I want to read the end of that, just the end portion of that in Joshua 3, the, the, the final portion of coming to the banks of the Jordan. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. You ever ask God that? Like, I've believed in you. I've seen you do good. You've brought me into a church that seems to love me. It seems like so much good, and then it just stops. It's like you're messing with me. Is this some kind of game? Yet as soon as the priest who trusted God, who carried the ark, reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabeth was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. What is it about God Leading people to water. Water that is risky and chaotic. Wouldn't it be great if these stories were, uh, and then the people woke up and the Caribbean Sea glimmered with green turquoise water and palm trees swayed. That's the God we want to serve and follow, right? Those are the stories we want to read. What is it about God doing remarkable in our lives and leading us and then bringing us to chaotic waters. Which brings us to the command of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus to step into the waters of baptism. When you commit your life no longer to decreating, no longer to your own control, your own rule, but you are now in essence turning in the garden from that tree the tree of power and control and knowledge, to the tree of life, which represented Jesus all along. When we make that choice, I am now going to create with the creator. I am now going to replicate his life. I am now going to practice the way of Jesus. Jesus says, the initiation to that life and that heart is baptism. 
I can't believe I'm going to use college fraternity as an example to baptism. But it's, it's sort of a, a close, you know, joining a gym is not quite the same. And, you know, there's other kinds of memberships. But this sort of initiation, it's not a rule. It's not that, hey, you can't get into heaven unless you're baptized. It's not about rule. It's about you practicing somewhat in public. I struggled with this. When I got baptized, I put it off for two years. Because there's just people going to be watching. There's something in your courage to follow the way of Jesus to say, I am, I am finished hiding. I constantly care what people think. I want the character of Jesus to begin to go deep in me, to be embedded into my heart and my thinking. I'm going to stop caring what people think, and I'm going to celebrate openly that I've made this decision. I am getting into not just water that cleanses you, but that symbolizes the tomb of Jesus. That's what, and this is why it's so genius what Jesus did in creating baptism as our entry point into the family, the community. The emotionally and spiritually deepening community of God's family, the entry point is baptism. Part of the genius is that Jesus doesn't require you and me to actually walk into a tomb or lay into a casket. I mean, that's morbid. To put to death our ugly and brokenness and our decreating nature, Jesus did that for us. He went into the tomb. The tomb he calls you and me into is water. And in today's world, it's clean and chlorinated. I mean, in the New Testament, the 30 or 40 examples we see of people getting into water, I mean, it's usually muddy and dirty and they didn't care. God had come into their world to reset the trajectory of their life. They are now able to begin the lifestyle and process of imaging better and better the life of God, which is what you were designed to do all along. There's so many examples of baptism. Jesus really commanding it as an instruction. And if there's a hesitation in you, I can relate. I can relate, and I can tell you at length later my own story of why I hesitated. But at some point, it reveals something about us and whether we're willing to go all in with Jesus because that's his call. His call is, hey, don't just give me that ugly thing from 10 years ago. Don't just give me this one part of control in your life. I'm asking for all of you. I'm asking for your whole being, all of your mind, your whole history, your whole worldview. I want all of it. I designed you to be led and controlled by me, the giver of life. I'm asking you to go all in with me. And I think that hesitation reveals sometimes where we're like, oh, I need to be baptized. This is the time. Brad's talking about it. I've thought about it before. But I think that but and that pause reveals that we're still wanting to be in control. I still care about what people think. I'm still I'm not sure if I really want to live with someone else in control of my life. Paul explains, he defines what baptism is. In two places, we're going to look at just one. This one's in Colossians 2. Paul says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. Baptism isn't just some ritual you're supposed to do because the church has always done it. 
It's not even about water. This water becomes magical and makes you clean. The water represents the tomb of Jesus. You are entering the tomb. You're saying, well, Jesus actually already entered the tomb with my gross attitude, with my habits, with my defensive reaction to people, with my selfish need for control. He went into the tomb. He's already taken my junk in there. And he came out with power over death. And so baptism, fortunately, we don't have to spend three days in the tomb. We go under the water and we come up out of the water saying, I'm stepping not just into the water of the tomb, I'm stepping into life, resurrection life because of what Jesus has done for me, what he's changing in me. You were, when you were buried with Christ... You were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to a new life because you trusted the mighty power of God over death that raised Christ from the dead. For years and years and years, I wanted to be a scuba diver. I wanted to start scuba diving. And I said it to some friends years ago, now maybe 10 years ago. And one of them said, hey, my, my close friend in Florida is a scuba instructor. And so he called me like a couple days later and said, hey, my buddy is willing to come up from Key Largo and train. Can you find a swimming pool in South Riding? I live in South Riding. Somewhere in, in the Aldi area? If so, um, he'll train you for free. If you can provide the swimming pool, do the classroom work, the regulator training, get in the pool. But you have to go to Florida to his dive site to do the final Open water certification. I was like, I mean, I, I, th I don't think it took me a second to answer. Heck yes. Oh my gosh. So his friend came up, trained me and a couple other people. It was just, my heart was racing. I was so excited. Finally, we did the classroom for three days. We got in the pool, learned how to do the regulator and, you know, the, br the breathing apparatus. We're down in Florida. Amy and the girls went with me. We're getting on the boat. There's about nine or ten of us going out and Something happened in me. I was so excited. I mean, this was like the thrill of a lifetime. We get like five miles from shore, and the swells are getting bigger, and the water's getting deeper and bluer. And my heart racing, something shifted from my heart racing toward, I can't wait to, I'm not sure I want to do this. And then comes, you know, we get to mile 12 or 13, and I mean, you can't even see shore anymore. I mean, the swells, the boat is moving, and then the instructor's like, okay, weight belts on. Before you strap on the heavy scuba tank, which is heavy, especially in the ocean. I don't know, in the pool, it just didn't feel heavy. Out there in that boat, it felt heavy. Before that, you put on the weight belt, which is designed to make you sink in the ocean. I put that weight belt on, and I don't know, man. I was like, and others, we were just looking at each other like, were we crazy? We really wanted to do this? And we get to the point where we're all geared up, and people, you know, they hesitate. You step off the back of the boat, one after another. And I, I don't know, I'm number seven or number eight, I think. And I get to the back of the boat, and I just freeze. I freeze, and no joke, I'm not kidding. The boat, you know, is moving in the, in the ocean. I decide I need to look, with my mask on, under the water first. So I sit down. I, I sit down like this, and the instructor's like, Brad, what are you doing? And I put my mask on, and I try to do this number, and the boat is just, you know, I'm, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm trying to get a look. And in, in front of everybody, he yells, Brad, 
We tipped our toes in the pool. It's time to step all in. I'll never forget him saying that. He yells it out. He's out in the water with the six or seven or people that are already in. He's like, it's time to step all in. And, I, and the people behind me are like, Brad, let's go. I, step, I, I stood up and I, had, I knew I've got, I, for five, in, in the next five seconds, I'm going to make a decision that I'll regret the rest of my life or I'll love the rest of my life. And I just stepped into 40 feet of ocean. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Swimming on that shipwreck and the fish and the, and I've done quite a few dives since. You come to a place in your walk with Jesus. You can blame him. Why are the waters chaotic? Why does this feel so risky? You can blame him. You can hesitate. You can say it's his fault. He knows what he's doing when he leads us to water. He has been passing his people through water for so long now into promise and into freedom, into his image. So two weeks from now, before our luau, I don't know who's going to join me. Actually, I know one. One's already told me this morning uh, here that she's going to join us in the waters of baptism that, that day. I'll be in the water and Jesus will be in the water and I'm inviting you Maybe you were baptized as a child. Here's what I'll say to that. We don't look down on other practices in other churches. There are deep-held convictions in how churches baptize. We believe the New Testament makes it really clear that everyone who's baptized is fully aware. They're old enough, they're conscious enough, they're aware that I'm getting in water to represent my brokenness and my ugly my need for control, my selfishness, and that it's all been buried with Jesus. And I'm coming out of this water alive in his power. If someone's old enough to understand that, we invite them. Join us. And if they're not old enough, we just say, just wait. Just wait another couple years. Some, you know, we told the story a while ago. Amy decided, she had been baptized as a child. She decided 10 years ago to be baptized again. She just said, my relationship with Jesus is just so clear now. And I'm so intentional about it. I just, I want to do it again. Maybe there's been that stirring in you that you walked away from God. Or maybe what you did long ago was a ritual more than anything. I want to invite you to join me in the waters. Jesus asks us to become a practitioner of his way. And it was odd to me at first, but... The beginning point of us practicing the lifestyle and heart and power and character and voice of Jesus is to join him in the tomb. Thank, thank God. It's the waters of baptism and not an actual tomb. So come on. Step all in. Don't hesitate. And I'm going I'm to tell you what I'm going to do right now. We're going to close here, the song. I'm going to go down to this front row. And uh, I'm going to challenge you to come join me if you're going to go all in with Jesus. Uh, if you're going to get in a pool in front of your church family for 30 seconds, a minute, and be baptized, maybe a first step <laughs> is coming and saying, Brad, I, I, want, I want to join you in the water. I want to join Jesus in the water in two weeks. Um, and then I'd, I'd love to pray with you and chat with you for just a minute before we make our way today, okay? Um, come on.
Go all in. Don't hesitate. Don't listen to that voice. It's happening right now. There's a voice inside of you right now, some of you. I know it's happening. I've been there. Reasons why you should wait. Maybe next year will be better. There's some part of your life that isn't really cleaned up yet. Baptism is for you, trust me. There's no greater moment than now than to step all in with Jesus. All right, let's stand and, and worship as we close.